0: This week's awesome message will start in a few seconds. But first, we hope you will stay connected with Southridge by liking us on Facebook or by following us on Instagram and Twitter. Search for the handle at Now and click the follow button so you can receive uplifting, encouraging content right in your feed. Thanks again for listening. And now, here is Pastor Micaiah. You see, at Southridge, we believe so strongly... In the future, and we believe so strongly in what God has for us and what He has planned, we believe that God is raising up out of this place that it's not just one person, that it's multiple people that will preach and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yesterday, I don't know if you've seen on Netflix has a documentary about Billy Graham. Y'all heard of Billy Graham? You know who Billy Graham is? Just incredible. I did not know that every president since Harry Truman has met with Billy Graham. That's just incredible, incredible. Just the the amount of influence God used a man to have. And yet uh, his greatest attribute wasn't that oh, he was hoping to become some international uh, evangelist. It was just that God just picked somebody to say, hey, I wanna use you. And he talked about how he would go from place to place and he'd run out of sermons to preach and he'd need help and everything. And I just thought, how awesome is that where you just go to a place and they just wanna raise up other voices. I believe that God is gonna use Southridge not just to reach the Bay Area, not just to spark revival in this area, but then to raise up other voices. I believe there are other men and women that are gonna come from this church that God is gonna use. And so this morning, I wanna just set that. That into the culture of our church. So that's why I like having people that uh, come and speak, but not just from other places, but right here from our own church that God is just raising up men and women who will preach and open God's word. And so this morning, I want to introduce to you a couple. Many of you may know them, but you may not, because sometimes we look at, oh man, God uses that person. Of course, uh, they're called to that, but I've got a career. And I want you to see that God uses people and even though they may have a career that's not full-time ministry. And uh, so I've asked uh, Adam Carr to come and preach this morning, and I just love this family. He and his wife are just doing an amazing job, great leaders. And uh, he's just remanded for Walgreens, but yet God has gifted him not only to speak but called him also to speak. So we're going to hear him this morning. So can we just give a big welcome to uh, Adam Carr as he comes and delivers the word this morning?
1: My name's Adam. Thanks, thanks for coming to church today. We're in the, wrapping up a sermon series called, What Would Jesus Undo? And uh, in the 90s, there was kind of this cult phenomenon, what would Jesus do, and people wore wristbands. And and so this is, if we, if we thought about what, if Jesus came to the earth, then what would he actually take away from it in our lives? There's a lot of things that come into our lives that uh, God knows that they're not good for us, and they will make our lives less fruitful. And so if Jesus had the opportunity What would he undo from our lives? So we started off this sermon series with a a commitment. Jesus would take away uncommitment, right? And then he would take away hypocrisy. He would take away spiritual blindness. He would take away undoing of unbelief. And this week we're talking about pride, and I'm talking about uh, a different type of pride than you might think. So if you're proud of a child or a spouse for doing something good in their lives, that's a, a, like a warm, affectionate feeling, and God uh, welcomes that, and he encourages that. I'm talking about the, the pride where I can do everything on my own outside of God, and not only can I do that, but I'm better than everybody else. That's a spiritual pride. Um, there's uh, two differences in those. So if you're proud of somebody else in your life, that's very good. Uh, God encourages that. We're talking about a spiritual pride today. Um, I grew up in South San Jose. I grew up uh, off of Santa Teresa in a street uh, called Chesbro. And uh, DJ Curtis actually lives on the same street that I grew up on, actually right across the street from the house that I grew up. And on the other side of Santa Teresa on Chesbro was my elementary school, Randall Elementary School. And uh, it's uh, been since turned into a different type of school. And uh, my very first day of kindergarten, my mom drops me off. Mike's going to put up a little picture. This is me, first day of kindergarten right here. Man, look at that hair right there. I want that hair again. That hair was good. My mom drops me off in kindergarten, and I sit in, you know, they got a little semicircle, and you're doing a little crisscross applesauce or whatever you're doing. And I was early. I was one of the first kids in the class, and I was sitting there. And in comes a mom carrying this kicking and screaming child who is just tears running down his face, and he looks you know, so nervous, and he's so panicked on what's going to happen, and, you know, I looked over this kid, and I thought, I don't know much about kindergarten, but I know it can't be that bad, so, I mean, I don't know what's going on, and the mom comes, and she brings this kid, and she almost dunks him right in my lap, because I was the only kid there, and she thought if she could just get him attached to me, somehow she could get out of there, and so she sits him right next to me, and I look over, and, you know, he's crying, and somehow we start talking, and, Down the road, him and I actually become best friends. His name's Justin Flurry. Best friends all the way through junior high school. Um, We actually moved uh, far apart from each other, but still to this day, we text a lot. He introduced me to the San Francisco Giants. I'm a huge baseball fan because of him and his family. we still text this day about Survivor. We're like Survivor nuts. We watch every single season and we're like, oh, I can't believe did you see that Immunity idol. It's crazy. Um, and so uh, we had a tradition that every Memorial Day weekend, I would go hang out with him and his family for the whole weekend. I'd go Friday night and I'd come home sometime on Monday. And one of these Memorial days, his mom told us, hey, we're going to go uh, check out uh, you know the church that we go to. And I, I don't think I had a, really any experience in church yet. This is kind of one of the very first experiences that I had with church. And his mom said, you know, don't stay up too late because we're going to get up early and, you know, we'll go to breakfast after church. And, of course, we're kids. We're playing, you know, Nintendo till probably 3 in the morning. And so his mom wakes us up, and it's just time to go, no time to eat. And whatever the opposite of a keto diet is, that's the diet I was on at this point in my life. I was eating big bowls of Lucky Charms and chasing it with a Mountain Dew and followed up by a Snickers, right? So, there was no fasting in my life at this point, right? We get to church, and they start singing songs, and my stomach starts doing that dance, you know. Have you ever been in church, and you can't pay attention to the message because you're so hungry? Like, that was me that day. You know, my stomach was so hungry, it was like eating my spine a little bit. It was trying to suck some nutrients out of there. I don't remember anything that happened in this sermon, but all of a sudden, I see out of the corner of my eye, there's this big, tasty-looking loaf of bread up kind of like on a on the altar or something and then i keep seeing you know the pastor's up there and he's doing things and i'm just you know focused on that bread over there and he, he you know he says something about communion we're gonna take the bread i said i yes, i want to take the bread whatever we're doing i'm in i want to get some of that bread and my friend you know he kind of nudges me and he say hey, we're gonna do communion um this is how it goes you know get some bread yes i'm going to do communion right so we get in line and uh how they did it is the pastor would hold the loaf of bread And then, uh, you know, you would take a piece of the bread, and then you would dunk it in uh, the grape juice, and then you would take it. That's how they they did communion at their church. And so we're waiting, and I just keep seeing people take pieces of this bread. I'm like, God, I don't know you very well yet, but if there's no bread left, when I get up there, we're going to have some problems. We're going to have some issues, God, Okay. So finally we get up there and my friend goes first and he takes like, you know, he takes, you know, a little tiny piece off of the bread. Like, you know, he takes like a normal piece like that. And then uh, I get up there and I'm like, well, it's my turn. And I'm not kidding you. I took a fistful of the bread, giant hunk out of this bread thinking, you know, I'm so hungry. I'm going to eat this. And my friend Justin, he kind of elbows me and he goes, man, you must be a real screw up. In his mind, he thought, you know, the bread was some sort of symbolism for, you know, how much you had screwed up in your life. And how he thought he took a small piece, and so he was better than I was because I took a large piece. And pride is that very sense. Pride is the feeling that I do something better than you, and therefore I'm better on my own accord and not through God, right? Right. When I was prepping for this sermon, Pastor McKay had sent me a couple of outlines, and I took a look, and, you know, there's one about pride, and I thought, yeah, pride, that's a good one, you know, I don't, I don't really struggle with pride, that's, that's pretty easy. And as I kept digging into these verses, and I kept looking things up, if you don't think, if you, I strike that, if you think you don't have a problem with pride, you might be the proudest person in the whole room because I certainly was. As I kept uncovering the onion of pride and I kept peeling back layers, I thought, I have fallen for the trap of every single one of the things that I'm going to talk about today. And pride has a very uh, sneaky way in our lives, because if I got up on stage today and I said, you know, in my life, I really, I struggle with lust. If, If I came up here and said that, you guys, well, you know, maybe you shouldn't be up there, you know, you should probably repent, you should get some help, and you probably shouldn't be speaking to church. You know, that'd be a common thing we would think. But if I got up here and said, I struggle with pride, you think, well, hmm, eh, everyone does, no big deal. It's just self-confidence, no big deal, right? Pride is a very sneaky one because you don't think that you have it and it leads to a lot of other stuff. Uh, a family friend of mine, Rob Hunt, he turned me on to a book uh, called Mere Christianity, and this is uh, C.S. Lewis, one of his va- very famous books. If you haven't read this book, I really encourage it, because he really breaks down Christianity in a very easy way to digest. So if you're if you're new to Christianity, it's a, a, a just a great way where he really dissects every little facet and gives you some really good practicality to everything. In chapter 8 of his book, it's titled The Great Sin. And so we know that God looks at sin all the same right that it's all evil and that there's no way to him through any type of the sin but there is a very special place for the sin of pride c.s lewis says there is no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves and the more we have it in ourselves the more we dislike it in others The vice I'm talking about is pride or self-conceit, and the virtue opposite of it to a Christian morals is called humility. According to Christian leaders, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all of that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil, and pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. That's some deep, heavy stuff. As I started to unpackage this, I thought, boy, that's, that's a heavy one. And so I started looking up in the Bible. Well, what does God actually have to say about pride? If you go to uh, Proverbs 16, 5, it says, Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. He assured will not go unpunished. An abomination? That's heavy. My wife looks at me as an abomination when I leave dirty laundry in in the bathroom. I can't imagine God looking at me as an abomination, right? This is the creator of the whole universe. He created every fiber in your being. He created everything in the universe, every star, every system on earth. Me and the kids were watching this Netflix uh, special with Will Smith called uh, This Crazy Rock or something like that. It's all about all the ecosystems in, in, in planet earth and They show in Africa, there are deserts that the dust gets pulled up into the airstream and it travels across the whole world and implants itself in all the forests on the other side of the world and gives it all the nutrients for everything to live. This ecosystem is no accident. This was created by an almighty creator. And to think that that deity looks at me as an abomination, man, we got to look out for this one. So we're going to break down a very famous parable. It's uh, Luke. 18, 9, 9 through 14, and this is a, a little prologue to this story. There's two main characters in in this uh, parable. There's Jesus is going to talk about two individuals who go to the same place to do the same thing, but they do it very differently. He's going to first he's going to talk about a Pharisee. And so uh, a Pharisee, if, if you've read a lot of the Bible, you often know that Jesus does comparisons to Pharisees, and a lot of times they look like they're the bad guy in the story because he calls them out for a lot of things. But you got to realize, culturally, this day and age, Pharisees were looked upon as great spiritual leaders. Pharisees knew uh, all 613 laws that they had to all abide by, and they obeyed by all of them. They had to memorize the very first five books of the Bible, and I'm not talking about just the names. They had to memorize all the books, everything in the very first five books of the Bible. They were the religious leaders. You would look at these people as you would look to Pastor John or Pastor Micaiah. That's how you would look at these individuals. Then he's going to talk about a tax collector. And a tax collector is not like a normal IRS agent. It's not, uh, you know, they take a little money out of your paycheck. It's not on that same realm at all. This day and age, the Roman Empire had rolled into town and conquered and were conquering everything. And they would hire Jews to become tax collectors to tax other Jews to fund their conquest to other places. And not only would a tax collector take the money for Rome, but they would pocket extra money for themselves. And so uh, a modern-day interpretation, you might think of maybe like a drug dealer in our neighborhood just outside of the church, and he's selling drugs to people, and then he's taking money to make himself better. You need like a visceral feeling when you think of a tax collector. Um, When I was preparing this sermon, I thought, you know, how, how would I look at a tax collector? And having two young girls, I thought I would look at a tax collector maybe as somebody who's uh, viscerally, the same way as somebody who prays sexually on young kids. That's how you have to think. Like the hate that you would have for this type of individual. So there's two. T- there's two people: the Pharisee and the tax collector, and they're both going to go to a temple and, and they're they're going to pray and they're going to do it two different two different ways. So we're going to start. We're going to read uh, verse nine through twelve. And so Jesus he starts off to some who are confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. So he's addressing a a special type of people here. He's really addressing a lot of the Pharisees and the people who were the religious leaders and the people that looked down on everybody else. Jesus told this parable. Two men went to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, "'God, I thank you that I am not like other people.'" robbers evildoers adulterers or even like this tax collector i fast twice a week and i give a tenth of all that i get sounds like a pretty humble guy right but the thing is he's not all wrong right he really is doing at the time the right things. He is fasting twice a week. In that day and age, you only had to fast once a year. He's going above and beyond. He's praying every day. He's giving a tenth of what he has. And sometimes we can think, you know, I I would never be like that Pharisee. Well, we all have a little Pharisee inside of us. Just this morning, I was at uh, the grocery store across the street, and I was buying this big chunk of, of bread. And when I went to the checkout counter, I fell for the same thing that the Pharisee is doing. There was six people in line, and at the head of the line, there was a gentleman buying two tall cans of beer with a whole bunch of change, and it was obvious that he was very down on his luck. And you know the very first thought that popped into my mind? I can tell you it wasn't, boy, I should help this guy out. I should go speak to him about Jesus. It was, man, what's this guy's problem? He's holding everybody up. This guy, go get a job. That was the very first thing I thought. just came into my mind. So to think that I am not like a Pharisee, that's a trap. I, I do struggle with the same exact thing that this Pharisee is. This individual at the grocery store is loved by God as much as I am. We are both created God equally, and we both need to be humbled by God. I hold nothing over him, and in this moment, I tried to. See, we start to look at ourselves as a gift to God and not as a gift from God. We need to be careful. Look at yourself as a gift from God, not as a gift to God. Because pride will give you some promises. Pride will give you some great promises. It'll give you the promise of self-sufficiency, you know, I've been working for the same company for 19 years and I have uh, went through several promotions and many of those times I put it on my own hard work, my own accord, my own skill set, everything that I've done and very rarely have I ever given God credit for any of those things that have happened. It gives you the promise of self-sufficiency. In this past year, my job has started to not be as good as it used to be. Benefits getting cut. I've started to look for other work and all this time I thought it was on my own accord and I never thought to think, God, thank you for that job. Thank you for the things that I do have. Pride will give you the promise of self-importance. If if you're up on stage and you're giving a sermon or you're you're singing songs and you feel like, boy, I'm a really important person. I got this, God, look at me. That will give you the promise. But what happens when it all goes away? You're left with nothing. It'll give you the promise of self-exaltation. If I do the right things in church, if I come every Sunday, if I tithe, if I do everything, God will take care of me. That's those tricks that we were. It leads to an inward emotion that leads to an outward action that you would never want to be associated with. I don't want to be the individual across the street at a, at, a, at a grocery store judging an individual who I have no business doing, but pride seeps in and you don't see it, and then you start falling for it. It's kind of like the very first car that I ever had. When I was a junior in high school, I worked at Roundtable Pizza. And I worked uh, Friday night, Saturday night, Sunday night, 5 to 10, and i smelled like garlic pepperoni and anchovies for the whole weekend my family hated it my girlfriend my wife uh you know my girlfriend at the time absolutely hated it i did get a lot of free pizza so that was a benefit But I had to walk to and from work every day, all up down Santa Teresa to get there. It was a long walk. And it's very motivating to save money to get a car when you are walking to and from work three times a week. So I was very fortunate. My dad came across somebody who was selling a car for 500 bucks, and so I saved up $500. And Mike's going to put a picture of this bad boy up on the screen. This is a 1986 Chevrolet Caprice right here. This is the front of it. Mike, if you would put the next picture up, this is the best one. If you take a look at this car, look at the ceiling in this car and it is falling down and I have to put thumbtacks in it to keep it up from falling on my head, right? My very first car right here, it was so broken that there was no AC in the car and not only was there no AC, that the windows didn't work. So. If you had to travel fast because you had no AC, when you'd stop, the windows would come up out of their hinge and you'd have to manually put them back down. My driver's side door didn't even close all the way. One of the brake lights, even you replaced the bulb, didn't work, we had no idea what's going on. And at the time, I was very humble with this car. I would go somewhere and I would park way out in the parking lot because I really didn't want to see, you know, people see me getting out. Um, and my prayer life was fantastic. I, God, please let me get to wherever I'm supposed to be getting to right now. Uh, God, don't let people see me in this car. You know, It really kept me humble, humble beginnings. I was fortunate enough that my folks, uh, you know, I put 500 in and they put a, a bunch of money to actually get the car running. Uh, the person that we bought it from had it in front of their house for three years and didn't even start it. Um, that's how good this car was, right? And then fast forward a few years, uh, Elisa and I were in college, Cal State Long Beach, and uh, I'm an assistant manager for the Walgreens uh, company. And I see an Auto Trader magazine, and they have the first image of the new Ford Mustang body type. They're changing the body type of the Mustang for the first time in many, many years. And as soon as I saw that Auto Trader magazine, I'm like, I am getting that car. That thing is fly. I'm ready to go. So I start working a bunch of overtime, start saving up money, and I've got a bunch for a down payment, and Elise and I went down to the Ford dealership, and I met with the sales manager. I said, I want to know when you get the first one. I want to buy the first one. Whenever you get it in, give me a call. Here's my pager number, my work number. You can call my mama. I don't care. I want to know. <laughs> so lo and behold, they get one in, and they give me a call. Elise and I go down to the dealership. I don't even ask what it costs. Literally, I just walked in. Where do I sign? A loan? Sure. No problem. You want money? Down payment. Go for it. Here you go. And as we're leaving the dealership with the new car, Mike's going to put it up here. This is uh, a 2004 GT Ford Mustang, 300 horsepower, CD player, automatic windows. This thing smelled fantastic. I didn't even eat food in this car at all. I was trying to keep it pristine. Elise and I are going down, I think it's 7th Street, somewhere in Bellflower Boulevard in Southern California, in Long Beach. And I'm not kidding you, as we're going down the street, nice and slow, three or four cars pull up a us, and start honking like, dude, sick ride, awesome. Because it's the first time they'd seen that car. It's the new body style right? So everywhere I went with this car, I started parking in the front. (laughs) When I went to work the very next day, I pulled in and, you know, a bunch of my employees are helping out customers. I stopped everybody. You guys got to come see my car. Come on, let's go. Pulled everybody out. We went and checked my car. I had a new inward uh, emotion that led to outward things that I would never do with my old car. And that's what pride can do to you something can change where you have a humble beginning in a 1986 Chevy Caprice and as soon as you come across and you get that you think you're the man and you think that you can do it all on your own and I can tell you I still have this car and it sure doesn't run the same as it did ten years ago in fact when it rains really hard rain comes from my glove box into my car and I still don't know what the heck's going on with that see things will change in our lives and we have to stay humble See, when we're full of ourself, there is no room for God. When you are full of yourself, there is no room for God. See, those inward emotions, I said they, they give you some promises, right? Well, those promises also make you fall into some other pitfalls. They lead to emotions and certain things like comparison. Because there is no easier way to make yourself feel better than to tear other people down. To feel better than other people, it can make you feel good. No, I'm not going to lie about that. That's, that actually happens. We do this all the time in our life. I did this this morning. I told you. I looked at this gentleman buying two tall cans of beer and thought, I'm better than this guy. I'm going to church right now. He's going to go get drunk. We're the same individual. We're struggling with the same things. And I didn't take the time to go out of my way to tell him about Jesus Christ. I thought about my own things, what were going on in my own life. You know who's the worst at comparison? Christian parents. Me and my wife have done this so many times. We'll be in a restaurant, and we'll see some crazy old kids acting a fool over, and they're like, man, those kids are going to prison. <laughs> Somebody better give those kids a whooping because this is not going to end well. We do that. We make ourselves feel better by tearing other people down. We can do other things like fault finding. We can start to look at things in other people to make ourselves feel better. Oh girl, did you see what she wore to church? Mm-mm, I'd never be caught dead in that. Uh-uh. We can start to find faults in other people and that's what pride can do. It can also make us do some attention seeking. You know, we, we could post a Bible verse on Facebook or Instagram and be more concerned with the amount of likes that we get than the actual message of the verse. That's what pride can do. Pride is really sneaky that way you know, all the other things, they're not easy to deal with, but they're at the forefront of your mind. Pride is an inward emotion that sneaks up on you, and that's why God tells us to take, take special attention to it, and a lot of us, you might be sitting in the room thinking, well, I don't really struggle with that type of pride. I don't, I don't tear other people down. I don't really try to find faults in people. Well, there's a different type of pride. I call it reverse spiritual pride, you know. There's, there's the idea of like, oh, I could never do that. There's the I could nevers, well, I don't have any ability to get in front of people and do announcements, so I can never do that. You know, I can't get up early, so I can't come here and put the flags out. You know, I'm not not—I'm not really patient, so I can't come to church and, and take care of the kiddos back there. And, you know, I can't really make coffee. I screw up my own coffee, so I can't come early and make coffee. There's the woe is me kind of pride. It's Man, why is everything in my life going messed up? I do the right things, and nothing's going right in my life. Look at this guy. He's got a better job. He's got this Ford Mustang. What's going on in his life? I'm working at round table Pizza, and this guy's over here, and I'm doing things the right thing. It's the woe is me. What do these two types of pride have in common? They're both about me. No matter what type of it, it's all about me, and it's not about lifting God up and glorifying God and giving everything grace to God, it's all about me. See, the very first thing that we have to do is acknowledge your inner Pharisee. See, all this week, I was unpacking, uh, you know, all these messages about pride, and I really came across that I struggle with pride a lot. And if honestly, if you think you don't struggle with pride, you might be the proudest person in the room, because I really was that person earlier this week. Uh, I listened to a message from one of my favorite people, Francis Chan, and uh, he, he did a message on pride, and he said, you know, if, if you were God, don't you think you would create the universe a little bit differently? Like, honestly. He said, if you could do it yourself, you think, well, I, I think I would do a little bit differently. He goes on to say, he says, you know what I would do? I would give instant punishments he says, you know, if you screw up a little bit, God just give you a little zap, a little zing, like, hey, don't do that. Because it would stop you from doing things, right? And God kind of saves things up. You know, saves judgment for the end. And in our lives, we don't do that with our kids or our friends. You know, we call people out, hopefully, and we hold people accountable. And we would think, that's the way I would do it if I was running the universe. Or, if we do something good, we want an instant blessing. You know, if you come to church every week, and, and you serve, and you are humble before God, and you you serve others, you would just give me a little bit of instant blessing right now. You know, just take care of some of these bills I got. And so Francis Chan, he, he goes on to say that he, he knows a, a very famous minister, John Vernon McGee. And John Vernon McGee was a, a very famous person who's since passed away, but he would do a lot of sermons over the radio. And a very famous guy and kind of has this low kind of high-pitched kind of voice all at the same time. He says, this is God's universe and God does things his way. Now, you may have a better way, but you don't have a universe. <laughs> and so we could think that. We can think at times that we could do things better, and I for sure have done that. And I'm going to prove it to you right now. I'm going to prove that we all have some Pharisee in us, that we all in society do this constantly. And there's a lot of us in here that are doing it now. There's some parts in this that, that may offend you a little bit, and uh, I'm going to get real with you some things that I myself have struggled with. And... Um, here we go, so inner Pharisees, we look at things in the Bible and remember the Pharisees they weren't all bad guys right they they followed six hundred and thirteen different laws, but are there sixteen hundred and thirteen laws in in this book that they were following uh-huh they they would take the laws from god and they would add to them and they would subtract to them and they would hold other people accountable for for other things in their life that are not necessarily in this book they would take a bunch of liberties to add things and we do this all the time in society i know that i do it see in the church in the bible it says god says we should go to church and that we should serve others and that we should give back to the church right but then we think well god they didn't have the nfl back then you know I'll go to church, but NFL season, maybe I'll take a little bit of break, right? We think, well, God, I know it says in here, we should give a tenth. We should give a tenth of our money. I, I see that, God. But honestly, back then when you wrote this, they didn't have the Bay Area, and they didn't have houses that cost a bajillion dollars, and they didn't have property taxes that are like $20,000, and minimum wage was probably a lot different back then, God. So I'll settle at 1%. We do that, right? In Matthew 19, it says, you should not divorce outside of adultery. And I have thought this all the time that there probably should be other reasons. You know, why not? It doesn't say that in here, but we do that in society. We add things to it. Hebrews 13, it says, keep the marriage bed pure, that that's a special sacred act for just marriage. And we, well, you know, we're in love. Mm, We're probably gonna get married anyway, so we'll just call it even, God, you know? We act a little bit like a Pharisee. We add to the rules right there. Matthew 18, it says, forgive people 70 times over from what they've done and love your enemy more than you love anybody else. Well, did you see how he cut me off, God? Did you see how he was driving? This really is intended for people that know how to drive God. I'm just gonna add that in here. One of the biggest ones that I have struggled with big time, and I've had many conversations with some very close loved ones of mine, including my wife, and I've wrestled with God over and over in this one, and I've come to the conclusion that I just need to be humble before God and not add to what it says here in the Bible. In Romans 1, it's a tough one. It says marriage is supposed to be one thing between man and woman. And all my life, and especially recently, I thought, well, God, you know, things are different. Really, they are, you know. You created people, and it's, it's made in love, so it's fine. And I've written that in there, my own self. And I need to be humble before God and say, I may not necessarily agree with it, God, but it is the truth, and we need to abide by it. And if I haven't offended you yet, there's a couple more. So <laughs> Ephesians 5.25, it says, Love your wife as Jesus loved the church. Well, I have some friends that have told me, well, you haven't met my wife, Okay. Am I just, somebody's clap? oh man, I don't know if I'd clap for that one, am I just supposed to like let, let me get crucified by my wife as Jesus did? Yeah, it's coming, it's coming. Ephesians 5.22, it says, submit to your husband. Yeah. I don't, I just stop preaching right there. She's, She got it all, right? There's women nowadays like, I ain't submitting for nobody. Mm -mm. No way. I ain't doing it, right? That's what we do. We have an inner Pharisee inside of us that we justify things that the Lord would never, ever put in the Bible. But we come across with our own self-centeredness and our own pride and say, God, I could do it better. I can make a universe better than you can. And we have no right to do that. We need to stay humble before God and say, I obey what you're saying, God. Because if we don't, pride lets us, it leads to all these other things. I said, C.S. Lewis says, it is the conceit inside of us that leads to all other sins. So what ends up happening in the rest of the story? In chapter, in verse 13, he goes on and he talks about the tax collector. He says, but the tax collector stood at a distance. And just stop right there. He stood at a distance. Do you remember what the Pharisee did? The Pharisee stood in front of everybody. Look at me. I'm doing things the right way. Just start right there. But the tax collector stood at a distance. I love when there's things in the Bible when you read them at face value and you don't, you would just breeze right over this. But as I study this verse over and over this week, you break down every little chunk of it to try to get other things out of it. And this very part right here, the tax collector stood at a distance. It's not there an accident. He's not even humble to be in the presence of Jesus and the Lord at this point. It goes on, he would not even look up at heaven But beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. He couldn't even look up. He stayed humble. And when he beat his his chest, this isn't like a Celine Dion, like, beat the chest, right? This is, back then, this is when they would beat their chest. This is a cultural thing. You know, it means that much more, right? Beat his chest. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. He does not try to justify anything either. He just says, have mercy on me, a sinner. He knows that there is no way out for him except through Jesus. See, there was a way out for him back then. Lawfully, he could go to the judges and the courts and say, I have stolen this much money. And they would say, okay, you have to repay everything that you stole plus 20% on top back to them. And he knows there is no way that he could do that. The only way that he can be right with God is to just come from him humbly before him and ask him for mercy. See, when we empty ourselves, we are in perfect position to be filled by God's grace. When you come humbly before God and you admit your faults and know that there is no other way to heaven than to come clean with him, that's when God will fill you up with grace. You might be thinking, man, things in my life aren't going very well. You know, I really wanted this job, and the interview didn't go well. I didn't get it. My kids aren't acting the way that they're supposed to. Boy, my marriage, I got married. I thought it was going to be bliss, and all it is is we're just fighting constantly. Well, maybe it's time that we come before God and let you know, pridefully, we cannot do it on ourselves, that only through the grace of God that your life might start to get right. That's one of the pitfalls of pride. If we finish out this parable in... uh, Verse 14, it says, I tell you this man, rather than this, the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. And this was like a big shock to all these Pharisees. Imagine uh, tonight in Game of Thrones, Jon Snow comes out and he gets killed by a white walker in like five seconds. That's how you would feel about this. Imagine when you go see Avengers, Thanos comes out and he just kills all the Avengers in the first 30 minutes. That's how you would feel about what Jesus just said. He tells everybody, this spiritual leader, this person who's following all 613 rules, this person who is leading everybody in worship is not justified by God, but the guy who comes before God and says, forgive me, I am a sinner. He is the one who is justified. And you might be sitting there thinking, man, that's some pretty heavy stuff. And Jesus might have you right where he wants you right now. This whole entire week, I thought I had no issues with pride at all. I could tell you there's no magical bullet, there's no red and blue pill like the matrix, there's no silver bullet for pride. It is simply to be like the tax collector, to come before him humbly and ask for forgiveness. See, there's things in your life, finances might be going, your children might be suffering, your jobs, your relationships. Humility is a position of strength. It is not a position of pride. I've had the absolute honor to baptize four people in my family, both my daughters, my wife and my brother. And every single time I baptize them, I have prayed that in society, we often think that self-sufficiency is where it's at. A true man is humble. So what are some things we can do, right? Because you might think, you know, you're upstage, on stage, Adam, and and you're talking and that's fine, but I'm I'm just a single mom. There is no just in the kingdom of heaven. There is no, I'm just a single mom. There is no, I'm just a construction worker. I'm just a teenager. Everybody has some sort of role in this fight with pride. You are in your own battlefield dealing with your own issues that nobody in this room probably can understand. And to be humble before God is the only way that you get through it. Pride promises you freedom for being enough on your own, but it delivers a prison of unattainable goal. Humility offers you freedom you cannot experience outside of Jesus Christ. So how can we check? How can we check if we're full of pride? This morning when I was at the grocery store, what should I have done? I should have asked, is my action and my feeling, is this glorifying to God or is this glorifying to me? If you take anything home with you, I want you to think of that. This week, when, when things come through your mind or you make certain actions, think about that. Is this glorifying God or is this glorifying me? And every action that you do, you'll start to find, this week I started to do that. I started prepping for this message early in the week and every little action that I thought, I thought, is this glorifying God? No chance. It's all about me. And I'm preaching the very message and all week I struggled with that. If you guys would stand with me, I didn't finish that story of me and my best friend Justin with the big loaf of bread. See, when I took that big chunk of bread in my hand, and I had a big softball fist of hand, and my friend said, Man, you're a real screw up. The pastor, he leaned down and he chuckled. he said, You know what, son? There is no piece of bread big enough. It's only through Jesus Christ that we're saved. Whatever's going on in your life, if, it, it, whatever it is, if you're humbled, if you're that 86 Chevy Caprice right now, that might be where God really wants you. See, there is no gt ford mustang that's gonna make you feel better there is no large piece of bread that's gonna get you through the troubles that you're facing right now there is nothing that you can do on your own to get you through what you need to get to it is only by the grace of god through your life that you could be
0: we hope you were encouraged by today's message if it was a blessing to you don't forget to share it with a friend or family member this week if you have any questions we'd love to hear them get in touch with us by visiting SouthridgeSanJose.com slash connect. Again, that's SouthridgeSanJose.com slash connect.